This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season is a year-round event. We are all here, albeit in different recording spaces. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. And in New York is Mike Hogan, our digital director. Hey, Katie. In Oakland is our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And on the coast of France is our critic, Richard Lawson. Bonsoir. (laughs) You're going to do this entire podcast in French just to spite us, right? (laughs) Uh, C. Is that that French? So we're going to quiz Richard about Cannes thus far. As we're speaking, uh, the films have not yet started screening, but there's lots of buzz to dig through. But real quick, first of all, news broke today as we record this that Jimmy Kimmel will be back as the host of the Oscars next year, which I find particularly funny because uh, at the end of this year's ceremony, which you might remember ended chaotically, he said something along the lines of, good night and I promise I'll never come back or something like that, kind of self-deprecatingly take the blame. But he's coming back. And I, I think this is a pretty great idea. What do you guys think? I think he was terrific. I think the show was really good. He has that sort of weird Bob Hope quality that is kind of easy on the it's it's not the grading and you kind of just feel like you're in pretty good hands. He does tells good jokes, but it's not really all about him. And I'm surprised, but pleased that they brought back not only Jimmy Kimmel, but, but the producers, Michael DeLuca and Jennifer Todd, who, who put together a really good Oscars right up until the moment that everything went completely to hell. But, but that was really uh, arguably not their fault, or if nothing else, they, um, they will have learned enough lessons to prevent something like that from happening again. The big news, right, is that Jimmy Kimmel was sort of announced late very late last year in terms of announcing Oscar hosts. And I seem to remember there being some behind the scenes drama about that. Some rumors that maybe he and his camp were not very happy with the lateness of the announcement. I believe we reported that actually that Rebecca Keegan had heard that directly. So yeah, Uh, I was frustrated. Not rumor, but fact. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then this year, this is insanely early, right? To announce an Oscar host. Really early. Yeah. So, you know, that that's fascinating to me. And I, you know, I think the way that Kimmel handled the whole Moonlight La La Land debacle really must have endeared him. And then also there's, you know, the Kimmel stock is very much on the rise given his very impassioned monologue that he gave about his son's own experience on his show. Like that can't help but sort of, 
I know that it endeared him to a lot of people. And so if the Academy sort of wants to cement this, you know, as Mike puts it, this very sort of warm, welcoming, he, he's not like, it's not quite dad joke territory, but you know, it's like America's dad maybe. And, and I, you know, staring down the barrel of maybe years of Kimmel hosting, I don't feel like I would mind at all. Yeah. And, and we know from experience, it takes a long time to, to put an event like this together, you know, basically the Vanity Fair year now is six months on Oscar party, six months on our, our, on our new establishment summit. So to give themselves not only six months, but whatever this is, you know, nine, 10 months and, and to get the band back together very quickly, it just gives them a chance to think it through properly and really make a better show. In my opinion, you know, I, I, I think it makes sense that they came out of that show saying, Jesus Christ, we were almost killed by a disaster. But on the other hand, like that was fun and, and there's more that we can all do together. I was speaking with, with Rebecca Egan uh, here in, in France about, about the, the Kimmel thing. And, you know, she said, expressed the same sentiment that um, giving him a lot of time, given that he, he does a live show, he does a you know, talk show every day and uh, he, he just had a kid and, you know, uh, under some sort of certain medical circumstances. So like, it's a nice allotment of time for, for him to really, uh, and his writers and to figure out what's going on. But yeah, I don't know. I think that like he has obviously one huge joke to build off of and then can go from there. So I'm cautiously optimistic about it. Do we want the Matt Damon thing to be a two year running joke or should we? I forgot that the Matt Damon thing came up because so much else happened in those Oscars. Uh, I'm a fan of that running joke. I imagine it's too much part of what he does to not come up at all. But uh, I mean, I don't know if Matt Damon seems game. I'm game. Matt Damon's like the Jack Nicholson figure now, going forward, perhaps. But they'll they'll find a way to keep it fresh, or else they won't do it. I assume. I actually have that kind of faith in Jimmy Kimmel, which probably says something. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right, Mike. That if Kimmel hosts, they will put Matt Damon in the front row, which he wasn't in this year. But if Kimmel's hosting, I feel like they'll put Damon right in the front row. And as long as Kimmel hosts, Damon would be there. I'd say they should dress him up like Jack Nicholson, but I don't think anyone at home would even know what that reference was. Like sunglasses and some yeah, bald, bald cap. I was even a fan of the bit where he brought the people off the tour bus. So I, yes. uh, I think I was more in the tank for Kimmel than even a lot of people. So I, th- I, I'm really impressed that they decided to just go ahead and commit this early. By the way, another thing that's interesting though is that. Don't they not have a president yet? Haven't they not determined who their next president is going to be? Yeah, there's a uh, there's a lot of going on in terms of finding the uh, the president and the board of directors. Um, although, as far as I know, and I, I wish Rebecca were here with us to kind of go through the fine parts of this, but ABC has a really big say in both the host and the show producers. So okay. this may have been something that the uh, the ABC was kind of able to do with someone at the Academy giving their blessing without necessarily the successor to Cheryl Blue Isaacs uh, being able to sign off. We're not in danger of a Merrick Garland situation where the new president <laughs> says oh we're not a, we're not going to confirm Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> 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 Although if that happened, I would be very interested in uh, Rebecca's reporting on the behind. The yeah, <laughs> that would be good. So at the end of the show, we're going to share Mike's interview with Anthony Michael Hall, who is in Netflix's upcoming movie War Machine. But before we share the interview, we're going to catch up with Richard about what's going on at Cannes since he's there on the ground. Uh, Richard, how are things going over there so far? Très bien. I just got here uh, this morning. I'm good and jet lagged, but uh, ready to go. So we want you to kind of explain Can to us, because I think for those of us who don't get to go, it becomes this kind of 
rush of pictures of people in front of yachts and, you know, foreign auteurs whose names you might not have heard of. And then Nicole Kidman wearing a whole bunch of different gowns. So as you're getting there, as you're talking to people, like what are, what are people expecting from this can in general? Is there an overall buzz of it's, if it's going to be a good year, a bad year, it's uh, some mysteries on the schedule? Well, I, I kind of like to think of Canon as, as three different kind of festivals. One is all that glamour and red carpet and, you know, brand deals where celebrities will fly in and because, you know, some makeup company has, is giving them some award to, you know, to get them to a party so they can take photos of them. And that's a fun aspect of it. That's more of the nightlife. And then there's the market, which is a lot of people from all over the world who are doing distribution deals and video deals and all this kind of stuff. And that's a very separate part of the festival that I really don't have much experience in. And then the third part, my my part is just the, the movies which are you know either in the main competition or in sort of sidebars, and that is exciting this year because it's it's a nice round number. It's the 70th uh, Cannes Film Festival, so there's some fanfare surrounding that. Combined, I think, with some perhaps slight political tension. I mean, Marine Le Pen, thank God, didn't win the French election, but there is still a lot of tension in this country as there is in our own. So I think it should make for a pretty interesting and potentially charged festival. So looking at your schedule of what you're planning to see, it looks like you're kicking things off on Thursday with, or the, the kind of the first major title that I'm looking at, Todd Haynes' Wonderstruck, which is really interesting. He was there just two years ago with Carol, maybe three years ago, but this seems like a really big uh, change for him. Yeah, people don't really quite know what to make of this yet. A poster was released either early this week or late last that makes it look sort of fantastical. And it's about two different kids and two different timelines who are sort of both chasing after the same thing. This is the vague plot description I've gotten. Uh, I heard rumors that could be apocryphal. Who knows that half of the movie is sort of sans dialogue because the actress and the character is is deaf. So you know, but just based on the strength of Todd Haynes' filmmaking, especially Carol two years ago, that really took this festival uh, or kind of, you know, this festival fell in love with Carol. Definitely expectations are high. It's starting the festival off. Um, it's not the first film, but it's the first sort of thing with, you know, let's be honest, big American movie stars with Julianne Moore <laughs> and Michelle Williams in particular. Do you have to be kind of embarrassed about that when you come to Cannes and want to see movies with big American movie stars? Or does everyone kind of admit that it's part of the game? You know, I will say that uh, I, when I first started coming here, this is my fourth time. The first year, Mike can attest to this. He was with me. I had a big sort of realization where I was like, wow, I don't know much about international cinema. And so I've, I've tried to play catch up since and sort of hid my my impulses toward the, the English language and movie star driven stuff. But now I think, you know, we can embrace that aspect of it as well as the wonderful, you know, foreign language things that I get to see and that later, you know, everyone else gets to see like Tony Erdman or Elle or whatever else kind of comes barreling out of this festival and into uh, your local art house if you're lucky to have a local art house. Funny you call that a realization when, in fact, I told you I would fire you if you didn't get better uh, at foreign language <laughs> films. I, Mike, I thought we signed an NDA about that. <laughs> Sorry, go on with your update, your your, your preview. <laughs> well, you mentioned L, which is really interesting because, you know, you get you get canon, you hear about certain titles that are like the big deal that everyone's kind of got their eye on. But every year there is something. I mean, Tony Erdman was, was its own kind of breakout hit. But then something like L, which made its way through award season. And then Isabel Huppert got an Oscar nomination. Like it's can seems to have this power to kind of take these movies that maybe European, maybe not that like might not get a boost and then to slowly make their way through. Do you, do you sense some uh, potential L like hits lurking this year? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, that's one great thing about the Cannes Festival from an American perspective. You know, we're unlike a lot of countries where their film industries are relatively smaller, so they're used to lots of imports. You can, an American can easily go a year without seeing a movie that's not made by Americans. But what Cannes does, I think, for us is it solidifies at least a few major foreign language titles that we can kind of focus on as the year progresses. And, the, you know, this year obviously is no exception. Um, I think the one that's top of my list is another Isabel Huppert movie, this time from Michael Haneke, who she's worked with in the past in Amour, which got a Best Picture nomination as well as winning the Palme d'Or here at Cannes. And this is a movie about supposedly kind of set against the backdrop of the French refugee crisis. So it's very timely, even though the movie is called Happy Time. This being a Hanukkah movie, I don't think it's going to be very happy. <laughs> like his movie called Love that was about uh, elderly people dying? Uh, yeah, that was about how we all die someday and it's a horrible, <laughs> horrible process. <laughs> but yeah. The poster for that Hanukkah movie came out today and it um, you say it's about the French refugee, refugee crisis and the poster kind of has the icons of an iPhone recording screen, which automatically makes me think of his movie Cachet, which is about someone being recorded. So I'm, I'm really intrigued to see if like he's deliberately playing on that. It seems like he, he could have made a shot-for-shot shot remake of Cachet and then uh, not told anyone because he's done that before. So that's especially intriguing to me. Yeah, who knows? I mean, there's the obvious cachet comparison to, yeah, absolutely, which I, I love that movie. I think it's one of the best movies made this century, maybe. So I'm, I'm really intrigued about that. Uh, there's another film from a South Korean director named Hong Sang-soo. Uh, he made a movie in 2015 called Right Now, Wrong Then. Uh, and this movie is called Gyu-hu. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. But I know that amongst my very in the know critic friends who are here, who you know are very, who are better at international cinema than I am, that that's really high on people's list. It's something set in the publishing industry. It seems to be kind of a mistaken identity drama. People are excited about that. And then I'm particularly excited myself for a movie called 120 Beats Per Minute, which is another French movie from a director named Robin Campillo, who in 2013 made a movie called Eastern Boys, which is this really great, underlooked kind of queer movie. Uh, and this one, um, 120 Beats Per Minute, is about the gay rights movement in 1990s Paris. So it's about ACT UP Paris. You know, we've seen a lot of How of Survivor Plague or The Normal Heart or uh, When We when we Rise, the recent NBC miniseries or ABC miniseries about the gay rights movement. But this is from a French perspective. So I'm really curious about that. And it could potentially speak to the political moment. Joanna, what are you excited about or intrigued to learn about? Well, you know, obviously... One of the big stories out of Cannes that would catch my eye, of course, is the, the TV presence that's there this year. That just it feels like Cannes, the the sort of snooty European film festival to end all snooty European film festivals, deigning to include television is an amazing thing. But we've got David Lynch's Twin Peaks, which is premiering oddly after it airs on Showtime. I don't I don't quite understand why, um, except you know in in an old newsletter of hers back from back in April 13th, Rebecca Keegan sort of re recalls this trip she took to Telluride where the director of the Cannes Film Festival sort of stopped by her table to talk to Laura Dern and say, what, what do we have to do to get David back, David Lynch back at the Cannes Film Festival? And so they're like, uh, a rerun of Twin Peaks? We'll take it. Um, so <laughs> there's that. And of course, there's, there's Top of the Lake. So yeah, I'm really interested to see how Cannes embraces TV this year and and whether or not that will go over well or poorly with the the audience and attendance there. Yeah, I mean, there's been some scandals, so not scandal, but there's been some controversy surrounding the presence of television properties and um, Netflix 
Netflix has a movie here called Okja from Bong Joon-ho, who directed Snowpiercer and The Host and a lot of other good movies. And that's already going to be on Netflix this summer. And there are big posters for it all, all, all along the set right now. And there was some controversy about whether things have to play theatrically in order to play can, especially in the competition, which Okja is. So there's a lot of this talk that, um, you know, for a long time, Cannes has been this sort of bastion of cinema. And even, you know, now, like even a stalwart festival like this, the television thing is invading. So that should be interesting. And I would stress, Joanna, that while Twin Peaks is premiering on Showtime in the United States before the premiere here, I don't think it is elsewhere. So it's still a premiere for a lot of people. Oh, uh, okay. Well, you say that Cannes is a bastion for cinema, and uh, it's also always been a bastion, like you were saying, with the market, um, where you get all these, you know, movies looking for European financing that don't exist yet, uh, and also studio publicity stunts. And in a preview that uh, Rebecca Keegan uh, put on the site today, she talked about how the studios are staying home this year in, in terms of big splashy premieres. Like, there's not, uh, a, you know, a big like Shrek three premiering this year, but they did have a stunt today where they had uh, the star of the emoji movie parasailing over uh, can. Did you happen to see this, Richard? Are you watching the uh, studio publicity stunt game? Oh, I'm always watching it when I'm here. You know, last year, um, my colleague, Julie, our, our colleague, Julie Miller and I had, a, had the pleasure of going to a kind of wild trolls event. And there is a post about it on VF.com. If you want to search VF, or Vanity Fair Trolls can, that it'll come right up. <laughs> so we were eager to hear about this emoji event, which TJ Miller from Silicon Valley, who's one of the voice star of the emoji movie, yeah, he parasailed onto the beach and then there was a press event. Unfortunately, it was kind of around the same time we were checking into our Airbnb and everything, so we, we did miss it. But, you know, I'm sure there will be other similar stunts, maybe not quite as big, but um, to be found throughout the festival. But yeah, I mean, that's the funny thing about Cannes is that like, while it does have this reputation, deservedly so for, you know, high glamour and sophistication, it is also, you know, it's a huge uh, market and it's a huge money making promotional tool for, you know, studios, both American and, and not. So there's a little bit of the high low kind of working, it seems a little bit like the, the low is, is less uh, present here this year. But uh, I'm sure I'll, I'll try to find some for you. I'm sure some movie will be terrible and booed and that will be the low. You just can't see it coming yet. Oh, for sure. And you know, you know, it wouldn't be a can without some sort of scandal involving an old man who has a really frightening, bad (laughs) sexual history. And Hey, lo and behold, one of the last movies to screen here, if not the last is a Roman Polanski movie. So uh, last year we had Woody Allen and this year we have Roman Polanski. Uh, That is no endorsement of either of those people, but uh, it should be noted that um, in its either, even though it's at the very end, um, I'm sure there will be some amount of something uh, surrounding him in that film. So looking a little bit ahead to what else is premiering later, I think Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled maybe has gotten uh, the most attention of any movie premiering there, or at least close to it, partly because it's one of four projects that Nicole Kidman is representing. And, uh, you know, Sofia Coppola is obviously a filmmaker we like to watch, but you're hearing you're hearing some interesting stuff about it at this point. Yes, I am. Um, I mean, it should be noted that um, starting next year, this is going to be known as the Nicole Kidman International Film Festival. So they've yeah, decided to go a different, they're doing what's called a pivot. So it'll just be all Nicole Kidman projects this year. This is kind of the, the dry run. Yeah, so this movie, The Beguiled, Sofia Coppola's new movie, it's a kind of Civil War set gothic horror, it looks to be. A trailer came out a long time ago or a few months ago, so I think that's partly why it's had a lot more buzz than some of the other titles who we, that we know very little about. But the kind of word on the ground here, if you if you listen closely on the wind, is that people are kind of down on this movie. I don't know who's seen it yet, but there's, a, there's some whispering that it might not be... Uh, the movie we're all hoping it is. 
Although it should be said, this happens with almost every Sofia Coppola movie, it seems. Like, uh, Somewhere definitely had its skeptics, and the Bling Ring did too. So, and Marie Antoinette famously got booed. So, I, 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 I'm disappointed to hear that, but I feel like I, I can't count it out yet. Yeah, and the patient zero for these kind of rumors could always be someone who just doesn't like Sofia Coppola movies, you know, saying, you know, nothing happens or it's boring, where that's what a lot of people, myself included, really like about Sofia Coppola movies, that they are sort of not reliant on, he- you know, heavy plot, that they're more sort of atmospheric and mood. So it could be, you know, another masterpiece from her. She is a staple of the Cannes Film Festival, so it's not a surprise that the movie's here, whether it's good or bad. But, you know, though I have heard these rumblings, I am I am choosing to, you know, when they go low, I'm going to go high and and go in with an open mind. Well, I'm one of the weird people who kind of hates Lost in Translation on principle, but absolutely adores Marie Antoinette. Like, I feel like it's one of my favorite movies of all time. So, you know, I think that's kind of what's good about Sofia Coppola is you, you rarely walk out in a lukewarm mood about anything related to her. I think that's right, Mike. And I think that that is, I mean, at least in my experience, a hallmark of this festival, you know, that like, it's, there's a lot of stuff here that's love or hate, you know, and um, there is, of course, there's always going to be a lukewarm thing. But like, I'm thinking last year to the personal shopper, a movie that I adored. It's so weird and strange. It's an Olivia Sayas movie starring Kristen Stewart. It's about ghosts. I think it's fantastic. One of the best movies. That, well, it actually came out this year, but uh, but a lot of people hated that movie and it got booed. So there is that kind of fun, black or white absolutism to be found because everyone's kind of whipping each other up into being passionate about something either way. And and I think that that's, you know, it, it the French setting certainly contributes to that. And it's why I think for my money, it's the most exciting of the film festivals that we go to, though it's not always the most kind of productive for our sort of Oscar purposes. That would probably be Toronto or Telluride. Uh, all right, Richard, personal favorite, like of all the things that you're going to be seeing of all the international tours you're going to learn about, like, what are you just actually really excited to see? Well, I have talked about it, I think, a few times already on this podcast, but I'm going to say it again. Yorgos Lanthimos, who made The Lobster, uh, which I loved, uh, saw that at Cannes two years ago, has a movie called The Killing of a Sacred Deer um, that's at the festival. Another movie starring Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman. They're just kind of this dynamic duo here. Again, next year, Nicole Kidman International Film Festival, and then probably the year after the Colin Farrell f- um, Festival. But uh, this one is very shrouded in mystery, but it's apparently about a a teenage boy comes into a man's life and he kind of adopts him and then things go wrong. So it could be a horror movie. It could be a drama. Hard to tell knowing Lanthimos' style. It's going to be dark no matter what. And something I've mentioned before on this podcast is that on IMDb, second build is Alicia Silverstone, Mm -hmm. which is completely out of nowhere. But troublingly, my colleagues and I, Julie and Rebecca Keegan, went down to... uh, pick up our badges today and got our bags and our, all our swag and included in that is the big, you know, nicely bound guide to all the films at the festival. And they have the cast list for this movie and Alicia Silverstone's not listed in it. So I'm worried that she's maybe some tiny part and I've just been fooled by IMDb's algorithm. Uh, IMDb, unreliable again. How dare you? She's actually the director. <laughs> she, <laughs> she's been she, Yorgos Lanthimos. <laughs> She, in fact, yeah. plays the sacred deer that's killed at the beginning of the film. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, big, a, it's, a, it's a reference to her, um, you know, very animal rights thing. That I'm very excited about, um, or and certainly very curious about. There's a Noah Baumbach film that seems to be a kind of adult children coming home to deal with their writer father with Ben Stiller and Adam Sandler and Justin Hoffman and Emma Thompson. That could be interesting. Adam Sandler could get the people booing, potentially. 
Although it's hard to imagine Noah Baumbach getting people booing. You never know because I was look, I was writing a preview that'll be up on the site when this episode airs. Um, that I, this is the first time Baumbach's premiered a movie at Cannes. He's done Toronto. Huh? He's done Sundance. So I will be cur- I'll be curious to see how that plays here. I want to make a bold prediction and say that Adam Sandler is going to become the the 21st century Jerry Lewis of France following this. It's going to start here, and he's going to have a long career making... I guess that wouldn't happen. He'd go to China at this point. I don't know, Mike. They could. The French could rediscover the cobbler and, and, de- and do it a masterwork. <laughs> you never know with these people. And I was the last one I want to mention. Actually, two more I want to mention really quick is Lynn Ramsey has a new movie here. She directed We, we Need to Talk About Kevin that was at Cannes a few years ago. This is a drama thriller about Joaquin Phoenix playing a veteran who is trying to rescue a woman from sex trafficking. And again, things go wrong. So that could be really, really grim and dark. But I'm, I'm you know, as always, Lynn Ramsey is a, is a really fascinating filmmaker. So I'm excited to see that. And then last of all, is Ruben Ostland, who made a movie called Force Majeure a few years ago that was a huge hit at Cannes and, and, and subsequently got great reviews in the States. And this one is about the art world. It's I think it's English language, primarily Elizabeth Moss is in it. So she's, she has two things here with um, that and um, Top of the Lake. So yeah, I just love Force Majeure so much that I can't help but be infinitely curious about what this new one called The Square is all about. I mean, it could be squirm-inducing, but I'm ready. One last thing to make you promote before we let you go uh, drink some rosé and smoke some cigarettes on a rocky French cliff. Uh, we're going to have our Vanity Fair party this year, and you will be there uh, with Julie Miller covering the whole thing. So I guess people should keep an eye out for that, too. And Alicia Silverstone will be there um, fresh from her performance as the avalanche in the square. <laughs> Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, I, mean, I kind of hope that I get to the party and Alicia Silverstone is just like in the Hotel, hotel Ducat pool, sort of like, just like, like a Bubsy Berkeley kind of thing, just, like, <laughs> yeah, just like dancing part of the decor. But yeah, no, the, the VF party is always, it's a really nice, intimate event. And it's at this beautiful the Hotel Ducat in Antibes, which is just this like mind-bogglingly stunning place. So that's always a nice time. I brought an appropriate suit this year. I think I was a little overdressed last year. I wore black, but it was more of a sort of chic cocktail attire. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Uh, I can't, I, it's always fun to write that party report and kind of see who's there. So yeah, I think we're going to, we're really doing the full court press here. It's me and Julie Miller and Rebecca Keegan. They're going to be reporting stuff. I'm going to be reviewing our stringer Jordan Hoffman's reviewing. We have a photo studio. It's going to be, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be your, your one stop candidate stop, I think. And Mike, you'll be there for the party to check up on Richard and make sure he's not harassing Alicia Silverstone. And I'll be checking on Richard's progress in learning about non-English language films. I'll be, we'll be doing an informal quiz at various times throughout the night. I think it's called a performance review. HR is sending you, right? Well, Richard, go do your research. And we will. I guess we'll talk to you next week after you've uh, seen some movies. Yeah, I hope we will have a lot to report. Um, there's, it's a big weekend coming up, as always is true of, of this festival. Um, you know, they, they kind of pack a lot in the front, but then save some stuff for the end. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's shaping up to be a good year. And, uh, you know, hopefully, I don't know, French nationalists don't overtake the festival. Who knows? <laughs> God. <laughs> well, we'll end that on a bright note and look forward to catching up next week. Yeah, that was a real Michael, Michael Haneke end to this segment. <laughs> Happy end. <laughs> I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. So now we're going to share Mike's interview with Anthony Michael Hall. And uh, Mike, you were really intrigued to talk to him for this movie, not just because the movie is really fascinating, but because Anthony Michael Hall plays Michael Flynn, who is a guy who you may be hearing about in the news these days. Yeah, there's a lot there's, there's a lot going on here for me personally with this interview, uh, starting with the fact that I grew up on, as, as he and I talk about, I grew up on his movies, first and foremost, National Lampoon's Vacation, which I have watched something like 578 times, including every time my family went on a vacation, we would watch it the night before. So I feel like I kind of grew up with Anthony Michael Hall. I'm fascinated by his evolution as an actor. He made, uh, after Vacation, he made three incredible uh, John Hughes movies, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Weird Science, and then opted not to make uh, Pretty in Pink. And basically, uh, you know, the story goes he was worried about being typecast and, and, and took a different direction. And you can still sense in him that he is, you know, he's a kind of a restless actor. He really wants to do high quality stuff. He needs to feel like he's passionate about it, that, he, you know, he needs to, he, he's always looking for great collaborators. So uh, this role is this interesting one because when he first took it, Nobody was thinking about Michael Flynn. You know, Michael Flynn was basically General Stanley McChrystal's sidekick who did get a role in the Obama administration and then ended up being kind of, you know, crapping out in that role. But it was it was only after, you know, the Trump presidency became a real thing that Michael Flynn became not only the very, very short lived national security advisor, but also really kind of exhibit A in this ongoing bizarre Russia scandal. So we talk a little bit about that, about what it's like to kind of take a role, make the movie, and then after the movie's done shooting, see that your character has become a huge national figure. But the one other thing I should quickly mention is that I have a weird connection to War Machine, which is that my fiance Elise Jordan, her her late husband, wrote the book that it's based on, Michael Hastings. The book's called The Operators. It's an amazing book. So I, I'm not going to weigh in on the quality of the film, really, just because of that conflict. But I do think it's worth seeing. And and Anthony Michael Hall has a not huge, but really really key and and great part in the film. And obviously, Brad Pitt stars as the character based on Stanley McChrystal. That was an amazing intro, Mike. So I guess we should just kick it right to you and Anthony Michael Hall. Well, I am thrilled to be here with Anthony Michael Hall, one of my favorite actors throughout my whole life and uh, a really incredibly important and effective and hilarious part of the new Netflix film directed by David Michaud called War Machine starring Brad Pitt. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to start. Let's go right to the Brad Pitt thing. Did you guys know each other before? We did not. um, Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I had not uh, had the opportunity to meet uh, Mr. Pitt, and I'd always been a fan. I think that he's a fantastic actor and clearly a, a major movie star. But, you know, as a person, I was really impressed. He's got a, a wonderful way about him. He's a real gentleman. Yeah. And he has a way of, um, you know, just putting people at ease. And he was, uh, you know, a real privilege to work with him and for him. And you were kind of his – your character, Greg Pulver, who is kind of his sidekick, right, uh, a little bit? I mean, you guys must have spent a lot of time together. You know, it was really mostly on set because, again, away from the set, you know, his private life was his own, of course. Oh, sure, yeah. And um, absolutely. But we had a great time on set. And the character that I played was 
you know, it was based on General Mike Flynn and it was inspired like the film by the book, The Operators by Michael yeah. Hastings. But Mr. Michaud, you know, chose to go in a different direction. And I think the film is great. It's a film for our times. I think it's a dark satire that really speaks to, you know, sort of the political war machine as we know it. And um, I think it's a powerful film. I'm really, really, truly proud of it. Yeah. What was your what were your first impressions when you when you read the script? Did you did you see the script before you before you took the role? I didn't. I had yeah. the opportunity to meet Mr. Michaud at the Chateau Marmont. And, right. Because uh, he wrote it too. He wrote and directed it. He did. Yeah. Sir, so yeah. he can kind of just tell you in person, like this is what I want to do. That's it. And yeah. that's what I, I just sat there listening, and I wanted to get a sense of his vision as the filmmaker, as a writer director, and he's a yeah. fine filmmaker. He's made some really great films, The Rover and Animal Kingdom. Animal Kingdom's he's great. Amazing. Yeah. 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 He's really talented. So. I just wanted to listen and get his take on the film, and uh, I just let him know that you know uh, that I was ready if if he was interested or wanted me to go to work. And had you heard of Mike Flynn before? I mean, had you followed all this stuff when it happened in the news? No, I, I really was not aware of him. You know, until yeah. I really read the book, and then I learned about the relationship between he and General McChrystal, and of course, uh, you know, Lieutenant former Lieutenant General Mike Flynn is a very interesting man. So you know, we, we share in common as he's from New England and. I just thought, well, this is a huge opportunity. This is the biggest opportunity in my career. So when I met with David, I, I just let him know how much it would mean to me to be a part of it. So I was really, uh, you know, blessed and very fortunate that he gave me the opportunity. Yeah. And did you ever meet General Flynn? No, sir, I did not. Yeah, but no. but you had part of you had to be watching this crazy news cycle, thinking, "Holy smokes!" Because the film's already in the can, right? As Mike Flynn becomes. Uh, first, you know, the national security advisor, then the disgraced ex-national security advisor embroiled in this whole Russia thing. I mean, what were your feelings watching all that? Well, to be honest, I mean, I'm just here to promote the film and, and to speak yeah. to that. But, I mean, it, it, it's been a fascinating year in politics, to say the very least. Right. You know? Uh, yeah. And, you know, despite anyone's personal politics, I think, as I said, this is really a film for our ages because it manages to blend incredible dark satire with a very powerful, impactful you know, war film that it kind of evolves into. Which yeah, I think is fantastic. So yeah. it's, it's truly brilliant what he what he pulled off, Mr. Michaud. Yeah, well, and and going off of of Flynn, but to Greg Pulver, who who's described in the film as um as having anger management issues. I mean, a lot of the comedy of your character <laughs> comes from them, right? Was that was that like a guy a guiding principle for you? Like this guy needs to freak out a lot. To be honest, I, once they changed the character's name in the original draft, I hope I'm okay to say this, but Mr. Michaud had the characters written as. Um, Hank, I think it was Berger, General Berger was, okay. was the name. And for whatever reasons, it, he changed it to Pulver. You'd have to ask him why he did that. But it was great because then I'd come to the set and uh, and Brad would call me the pulverizer. So I, I kind of <laughs> got to liking it, you know, and it was yeah. a real privilege. And, and again, playing those beats where you're really kind of oscillating between finding the humor in it by playing it straight and then the discovery of lighter moments, which is great. Yeah. And so I just chose to play him more of a jarhead, you know, more of like a Marine, you know. And yeah. I have a lot of uh, military history in my family. My grandfather was in World War II, and, uh, you know, he fathered 13 kids. And then I had an uncle that was in the Korean War and then one that was in the Vietnam War. So I took this very personally as a proud, you know, American and, and patriot and, and a lover of our country. Um, so that was all the impetus I needed. That was all the, the inspiration I needed to know that I was working with Mr. Pitt and Plan B and and Dee Dee and, and, and Jeremy Kleiner are just such phenomenal producers. So it was a real privilege, you know, to be a part. And what what do you think, looking back over your career, what's the biggest change between Hollywood when you started out and now? Does anything jump out at you? The first thought I had when you said that was actually cost. I think just the the expense of films. I think, um, yeah. 
you know, whatever can be said about inflation, I'm not an economist, but I, I just think that films were, when I was a kid in the 80s, you know, an expensive film was like 10 or $15 million when I was starting out with John Hughes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember there was a sort of breakthrough moment when the first Batman was made and Tim Burton was directing. And I remember the industry was kind of took note because, wow, that was going to be a $30, $40 million film. Yeah. And by today's standards and by contrast, you know, that's sort of a, a, a small studio film is in the 30 to 50 range. You know? Right. So my answer to your question would be that I think the cost of, of filmmaking has obviously kind of skyrocketed, but also the quality and also television going through a kind yeah. of new golden age. Um, and I think Mr. Serrano's understands all of that. Yeah. You yeah. Know. Well, you were, you mentioned Batman, you were in the dark Knight, which has got to be a hundred million dollar movie, right? Yeah. It and made incredible. it all back. And then yeah, some. <laughs> that was another experience. You know, when I've had, I've just tried to focus on working with the best people I can. And that was another, you know, a great auteur, uh, Mr. Nolan that I got to work for. And, uh, you know, I'm reminded of that old saying, no small parts, only small actors. I was so happy to have that part in the film. You know, I was yeah. really blessed to be a part of it. And I got to work closely with uh, Mr. Ledger and, and Mr. Bale and and it, another phenomenal experience where, yeah. you know, the experience of being on set, being a part of it, the travel, all the, the wonderful things that come along with being a part of this industry are right there in front of you. And at the same time, you get to be a part of something so much bigger than yourself. It's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the big changes I can think of is when I was a kid, um, you know, HBO, the joy of having HBO meant that you just get to see, watch the same movies over and over and over and over again. And I would say National Lampoon's Vacation, although eventually we had, we had a cassette tape that was like a hundred years old that we ran every, every time we went on a family vacation, we watched it before we, before we went. You've probably heard all this a billion times. It's I can recite I the whole damn movie. <laughs> but can we talk about it a little bit just for yes, like sir. wish fulfillment I, for me? It'd be my honor. <laughs> I mean, the scene with, with, I'm going to call him Mr. Chase because you're so formal with Mr. Chase in the, in the desert. You know, I have a question. Like, is that a real beer that you're chugging at age, at age 14? Okay, so there's a thing. When you watch a movie at the end of a picture, you'll see Foley, right? Like, right. Like, who's the best boy? What are these great, you know, it takes yeah. a village to raise a child and yeah. it takes a village to make a movie. <clears throat> and what that was was an empty beer can and they uh -huh. foleyed in some guy in a Hollywood studio gulping later, months oh, later. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. And we shot that in Monument Valley and my memories of it were it was literally 120 degrees that day. And yeah. the late, great Emma Jean Coca, poor lady, she had experienced a horrible car accident in, in, earlier in her life. And I just recall being in the car, being driven to set, and she was so paranoid about having to go down to the valley of Monument Valley to right. shoot the scene. And then when we get out there, people like literally were just passing out. Some of the crew, like everybody was so overheated. But that scene was just such a fun one. For yeah. Because I, as a kid growing up in the 70s, I'm 49, and I, I just looked up to all the stars of SNL and, and all those yeah. films. So to be on set working with the great, you know, Chevy and John Candy and all these incredible people was Really uh, unforgettable. Yeah. Well, and the other one was uh, one of the thrills of my young life was meeting not Jane Grakowski, but her mom was involved in local theater in my town in New Jersey. And so I felt I had a, a personal connection. Yeah, with them. Yeah. But that scene, cool. this, this stuff that you guys shot on the farm, I mean, how, like, how the hell, I mean, you're like, you know, you got Pac-Man, you got asteroids, and it becomes a hemorrhoids <laughs> joke. Does this, totally. I mean, do you remember yeah. all this? Know, like, I do you have like vivid memories of it? I really do. Because you were really a kid. Do. We shot that yeah. in Bakersfield, and I remember just laughing my butt off. It was really funny to see, particularly to see Chevy and Randy Quaid work together. It was great. But I remember all those scenes, yeah. I actually went yeah. to high school with Jane. She's a really nice lady. Yeah, yeah. she's she's cool. And yeah. and obviously gone on to a great career on, on 40 Rock. Absolutely. Um, and then you did this incredible trio of John Hughes movies, and, and you became the youngest member of the Brat Pack and all that stuff. Does the Brat Pack ever get together anymore? Do you guys have, like, uh... 
well, reunions? Yeah, we kind of see each other. You know, I do a lot of sort of Comic-Con type conventions and I have fun with that. And I see some, a lot of the actors I've worked with over the years and that's a lot yeah. of fun. It's a real blessing. You know, it's never lost on me um, that, you know, I was just a kid from New York City. I had no plans to be an actor and I was just so uh, fortunate to, to have a career and to, you know, kind of just keep chipping away at it, which is something my father always told me, just keep working at it, you know. So yeah. I have kind of a workman's attitude. I did a picture with Danny Trejo a couple of years back for Universal and it was a, a Western we shot in them in, in – uh, in Eastern Europe, actually. But anyway, Danny said something to me which really stuck with me. He goes, Mike, I'm like a mechanic. I go where the work is, you know. And mm -hmm. it was very um, – I learned a lot working with him, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I've, I have that kind of workman's attitude about it. I just like to kind of – I appreciate the work and then I just go back into my own life. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, in those days, it, feel, it feels like – you were kind of a stand-in in some ways for John Hughes at that. He was writing roles that maybe were, that maybe were, it seemed like the role you were playing might have been the role that was like put himself putting him in there. Kind of the nerdy guy, the yeah. sensitive, vulnerable guy yeah. in some cases. I don't know. Do you ever talk to him about that or? I, you know what? We had so many talks. I have to yeah. say, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here without John Hughes. Yeah. This guy changed my life. He was such a wonderful guy, very kind and compassionate and funny and was such a, a natural and, and qualified leader. He had a, such a good sense of empathy and compassion and he really empowered us all he gave yeah. so many of us opportunities um so i think in terms of his muse i think it was molly in some cases maybe it was right. me and sure. others and yeah but i think the thing that i that i'm struck with most as i reflect on his life and the work i was fortunate enough to be a part of was he would sit right next to the camera this is before video village this is before everybody had a an iphone and everything and so you know he would literally laugh or cry with you right through the tape Really? So he was your first audience. He was like right there with you and such a wonderful man. Um, so along with he and Ned Tan and these people that gave me that break when I did 16 Candles many years ago and then it yeah. led to these other films. It was just, uh, it just changed my life. And so I'll always uh, salute Mr. Hughes. Well, you know, this, the, the ostensible purpose of this podcast is to talk about awards. And I, and I know that you went to the Oscars, right, in 2010 as part of a, a John Hughes reunion. Yes, sir. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about that experience? What was that like? Had you been before to the Oscars? I'd never been. I was yeah. so blown away. Honestly, I needed to sort of meditate and kind of ground myself for a couple of days because I was so nervous about it. <laughs> and when I got there, I was like in the green room with all these, you know, major actors and stars, whatever you want to call them. And they were just, I was just really kind of blown away by it. But I was also taken by all the little moments and everybody there that was a part of it. It was such a magical thing to be a part of. And I also feel that over the years, you know, it's such an illustrious thing. It's, it's the top of our industry. Um, yeah. and at the same time, I think that maybe comedy doesn't always get a fair, mm -hmm. um, you know, shake when it comes to the award season thing. So it was such a wonderful tribute. His wife was there, Nancy and his two sons, um, were there with their wives and it was just a really beautiful night. So I was at once a little nervous and very excited to be there. And I was just trying to really take in the whole experience. It was yeah. really Does, amazing. Is, any you know? funny stories happen while you were there? I can't think of anything funny. It was just all <laughs> awe-inspiring. Honestly, you're at the yeah. Kodak Theater and you're just sitting there going, it's kind of out of body. You know, you're kind yeah, of yeah, like, yeah. Wow, am I really here? And you got it's a tough feeling like when I get when I drive on a lot and I'm going for a meeting or something, I'm going, wow, this is like, I'm on a movie lot. Well, you, you've done so many projects. You're, you have, have had a band. You've had, like, what's, <laughs> is there anything that if you could do one thing now, is there anything that, you know, you dream of or you just kind of keep an open mind about what's next? I do keep an open mind about what's next. And something my father always taught me was this. So it's actually a Wall Street term, kiss. You know, keep it simple, stupid. And I, yeah. I just want to cultivate good relationships and I want to work with great people. Like I had the great fortune of working with on this film and, and, uh, eventually I want to start writing and directing. And so those are 
the works. You know, oh, the cool. Plans and, yeah, I have a small production company. It's called Manhattan Films and, and just starting to develop and put things in order so I can uh, build to that, that point. But to be honest, it's about the company you keep. And I think um, this was honestly the, the highlight of my career. That's that's great. Did you ever go to uh, film festivals and to check out Not really. things? I've yeah. always felt like if I wasn't a part of it, I would feel like. Well, now if you have your if you have your uh, <laughs> production company, you can go scout talent. Yeah. You know? Hey, you know what? I would love to. You know, I, I think um, there's a great place in that. I think you know, um, film should be uh, they should endure. I think this film will endure. You know, I think this is really a very special film, and I hope uh, audiences are receptive to it, despite their personal politics. I think it's a film that really. Uh, you know, um, it's very powerful in many ways. Yeah. And also very lighthearted in many ways. No, it is. I mean, it, it tells a hell of a story. And I think, um, and I think it's, you know, you're in a funny spot here playing somebody who's based on, on someone who's so in the news. Um, and so it, it becomes extra, even more fascinating than it would have otherwise been as you watch and think, Oh, I wonder if this is what Flynn's really like. But, but also it's totally fits the film and it's a great performance within the context of the film. So I congratulate you thank and, you, sir. and, uh, thanks for coming by and spending some time to talk to us. It's been a real privilege. Thank you, sir. That does it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget, you can still rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We love hearing from you and uh, getting your feedback. You can find us all at Vanity Fair, and especially Richard's Can Dispatches and lots of other reporting from our team out there. Uh, and we're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. Joanna? Joe wrote this. And we've lost Richard, but he's at Rylaws. This episode was produced by Jennifer Lai and edited by Jordan Bell. Thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the worst progress on his language acquisition classes goes to Richard Lawson in France. Uh, C. Is that, is that French? The Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, who should be the mayor of New York? We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Nikki, yes, it's been really great Chill being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's a walk. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>